Good morning, La Havre. Can you hear me? We're all set. Um, as I was, as we were just singing just now, I just felt this and felt like I needed to say it. I really enjoy coming here because I like you guys. <laughs> this is just a great group of people. It's a great group that God has gathered, and I'm so grateful to God for each one of you and for what he's doing in our midst and look forward to the exciting things in the future. So uh, I thought I was wearing red this morning, but I've got an excuse. I'm colorblind, so <laughs> I'm red-green colorblind. No, actually, I need to read my emails better, and so, but I'll be there today with red. I will change. But um, I want to begin this morning by uh, just saying thanks to Scott and Tom and the worship team for injecting this uh, worship song, Majesty, into the mix this morning. That was by my request. It's uh, a song that used to be a contemporary Christian song, (laughs) and uh, I guess it's not as contemporary anymore, but it was very, very meaningful to me in the uh, mid-80s. 1983 or so, my wife Barbara and I uh, traveled 6,000 miles away from home and lived in uh, Scotland in the Northeast for three years. And it was our first time of being far away from home. And we found an amazing church. And that song was becoming very popular at that time. And I can remember gathering on Sunday mornings with people that we were just getting to know that were becoming truly family and worshiping and magnifying the name of the Lord Jesus together. And it did something to our perspective about God's work in the global church and God's work around the world. And it kind of evokes those kinds of memories. There's a second reason I wanted to sing it, though, too. And that's because it's really at the heart of our passage today, the majesty of God. Luke chapter 9, 36 through 50, I invite you to turn to it in your Bibles. But right in the middle of it there, after narrating an amazing story of Jesus performing a deliverance, Luke says this, they were all astonished at the majesty of God. As I think about what is the heart of this passage today and what makes everything cohere around a center or main point, it would be that expression, the majesty of God. So everything we're talking about today will revolve around this idea of the majesty of God. And we're grateful for his majesty. Uh, The dictionary defines majesty this way, sovereign power, authority, and dignity. Jack Hayford, who's a pastor about an hour north of here, was the author of that song. The man I deeply respect and has had a marvelous ministry, and that song has had a big impact in many churches over the years. And in writing it, he said this. He says, Majesty describes the kingly, lordly, glorious, regal nature of our Savior. Majesty recalls that our worship can align us with God and his throne and his kingdom. We are rescued from death, restored to the inheritance of sons and daughters, and qualified for victory in battle against the adversary and destined for the throne forever in his presence. 
The church can always sing of the majesty of God, regardless of what is going on around us. My thoughts have been drawn to that even in this past couple of weeks, past couple of months, as we have faced, as Christians, unprecedented threat to our religious liberty. And to meditate on Messianic Psalms like Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 in light of that, and to ponder the majesty of God and that Jesus is on the throne and that he is Lord and he always will be is a great encouragement for us as believers regardless of what goes on around us. So proclaiming the majesty of God. But there's a lot more to the majesty of God than just thinking of Jesus on the throne because his majesty means something for us today in terms of how we live our Christian life. In the song written by Jack Hayford, there's one line that reads this way. Majesty, kingdom authority, flows from his throne unto his own. Jesus is on the throne. He's accomplished his work on the cross, but he's active as head of the church And there's something about his majesty that flows to us today as the enabling presence and power of God to do the mission and work he's called us to do. And this is crucial as we think about the example of Jesus in our passage today and what he will teach us about majesty. Majesty is associated with the phrase kingdom and the kingdom of God. And Luke says later, a couple of chapters later, if I cast out demons by the finger of God or by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew has the same statement. If I cast out spirits by the kingdom, by the uh, spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There is something associated about Jesus' bringing of the kingdom that has relevance for us here right now. And this is something I want to explore with you this morning. So let's dive into our passage, Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50, and we'll take it section by section, and I'll narrate a little bit of how it relates to this overall theme of the majesty of God. So if there was a way as to describe this first section, it would be the majesty of God is displayed in deliverance. The majesty of God is displayed in deliverance. So read with me Luke nine thirty seven, I am following. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished 
at the majesty of God. This is a passage that is a hard one. It's a hard one to read in our contemporary culture because we have other explanations for this kind of phenomena. But it's something that in God's providence ended up in all three Gospels. There's versions of it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's very important to them. This is the second of four accounts, major accounts, of Jesus doing something in bringing deliverance to people afflicted by spirits. And the first one was the situation involving a person troubled by a spirit that came to light in the synagogue at Capernaum. And we covered that in May, and I happened to be preaching that week too. So I'm not sure, Joe, how am I drawing these tough passages like this? A a third one, then, is the Gerasene demoniac in which Jesus casts the spirits. They go into pigs and run down a hill. And the fourth is the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was severely demonized. And from a distance, Jesus uh, brings healing uh, to her in this way. Now, there weren't just four occasions where Jesus did something spectacular like this during uh, his earthly ministry because there are summary statements in the Gospels that make it sound like this was a normal kind of occurrence in the course of Jesus' ministry. Uh, In Luke 4, when we looked at the passage regarding the demoniac in the synagogue at Capernaum, there's a summary statement at the end that said, in the evening... People were bringing to him those who were sick and uh, afflicted by demons, and he was healing them and casting spirits out. I think it was a regular part of his ministry uh, that he engaged in regularly. So why in the providence of God did these four accounts get chosen, and why the one that we're looking at today? In my view, and we don't have a direct answer to that question from the Scripture, but in my view... These are four remarkable accounts. I mean, they're, they're spectacular. They're the kind that you just stand back and go, wow, that is just incredible and amazing. And when you think of Jesus casting spirits into pigs and then rushing down a hill, it's just incredible. It's amazing. And I think the gospel writers have chosen four that are representative but also remarkable in what they said. In what... I think is very important in recognizing the work of demonic spirits as we think about this and the range of things in Jesus' ministry and in the early church. It's easy for us to get focused on the extraordinarily dramatic and think everything related to demons has to be like that. But the scripture also tells us that for all of us, our struggle is, against, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and the powers of darkness and so on. There's a more mundane kind of work. There's a range of, uh, of ways that the demonic works. And if there's anything that I've learned over the years regarding spiritual warfare, it's not to pigeonhole Satan into particular ways that he works. There's a spectrum of his involvement that ranges from temptation and light sorts of demonic influence in people's lives to hear the four accounts that are so extreme. Now, I've never seen demons cast into pigs before. Uh, I haven't even seen them cast into goldfish. That would be maybe a little more palatable. But uh, 
But I have seen demons at work, and I have prayed with people who have been uh, troubled and oppressed and afflicted by demonic spirits in various ways. In this situation, however, there's an irony into the way that it develops because Jesus has just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, where to some of his disciples his appearance was transfigured and for a moment they could see the divine glory reflected in him because he turns dazzlingly white. And it's a reflection of the kavod or the glory of God uh, that is part of who God is, who dwells in inexpressible light and reflects Jesus' affiliation with the Father in his divine nature. He comes down from the mountain and then finds this situation where his disciples are unable uh, to uh, deal with this situation. And as I look at this particular account, it really troubles me deeply because it's in, it involves a child. Uh, in Mark's account, Mark chapter 9, 21, Jesus asks him, how long has he been like this? And uh, the father answers, well, he's been that way from childhood from a very early stage. And I find that just terribly unfair. But I think that reveals something of the character of the one who we're up against, the enemy of our souls, who will exploit in any way that he can. And yet there is hope in the midst of this. Now, some scholars who have looked at this passage have said, well, boy, it's great that we live in the modern scientific age because this is the only way that the ancients had of explaining phenomena that today we would understand as having a different point of origin. In other words, today we understand modern neurological functioning. They didn't understand that back then. We understand particular psychological diagnoses like dissociative identity disorder or post-traumatic stress syndrome and all of these things. It's wonderful that we've got past that and can get past that mythological view of the world that was part of ancient culture. Now, there's part of that that I get. They didn't have a way of understanding neural pathways like we understand today. They couldn't look at the cerebral cortex and see the flurry of cell activity and electrical and neurological activity that accompanies something like this that we would might call epilepsy. But Jesus is smart. He's smarter than we give him credit for because he sees something else behind this particular instance. And I think what argues against that in this biblical account is the fact that when Jesus dealt with this as a spiritual issue, there was immediate relief. That just doesn't happen, and it doesn't go away forever if there's truly a neurological factor or component to it as well. The other account of Jesus casting the, pig, casting the spirits into pigs if this was just a psychological thing going, how do you explain what happens with the poor pigs at that stage? So there is something more to it, and I tend to trust Jesus that there's more to life than, than my neurology. There's more to life than my biological chemistry. 
of, of my existence, that there is a unique spiritual dimension of life that we've got to take really seriously. We've happened to be raised in a culture where it hasn't taken it very seriously, uh, that we view that as outdated, outmoded, and kind of wacky, uh, to be honest with this. And I think we can't get lost on the fact that the guy that wrote this particular book, Luke, was a medical doctor. And he had both lenses he could look through these things with. As we look through this passage, one of the things that surfaces here is Jesus is a little bit uh, frustrated with his disciples as he uh, sees them unable to deal with the demonic spirit. Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Jesus, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? It just seems a little, you're a little bit hard on them in this instance. But we've got to remember that Jesus was training them, the 12, and spending time with them, investing with them, and they were so deeply impacted by their own culture that sometimes that was difficult to surmount. And so he uses the language that was expressed in the Old Testament about the generation of the Exodus that wandered in Israel and just weren't aligned with God and his purposes the way they should be, and he evokes memories of those accounts. The other two Gospels, as they look at this story and narrate it, they emphasize the role of faith. Mark's Gospel, for instance, says, uh, Jesus said to the man's, to the father, uh, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. And at the end of the passage, Jesus said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In Matthew's version, he speaks of faith like a mustard seed. And if you have faith like a mustard seed, what can you do? Move a mountain. And you can say to that mountain, move from here over to there. Now, that's metaphorical, but this looked like a mountain. This looked like an impossible situation, and for these disciples, it was. But Jesus said, no, trust me on this. There is authority that you now have that you've got to get used to the fact that you possess that. And in Paul's passage on spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6 he says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith by which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and his work. I wonder what the Lord would say to us today uh, as we uh, face a variety of situations. Would he be frustrated in a similar way with maybe our insufficiency of faith to deal with things on a supernatural realm. And I worry about that because I think we have lived in a generation in a culture where we not only may not know how to deal with this, but a lot of us have a hard time even believing that these things are real. I heard one scholar say one time that uh, to believe in, in demons and evil spirits is tantamount to going back to a belief in the tooth fairy, elves, dragons, and a flat world. Uh, we are even further behind 
because we're struggling with even whether God exists. Is God real? Much less whether spirits are, are real. But I think what the Lord wants us to know in this passage is what he tells uh, through the gospel writers. The example of Jesus is such that if, we, if he casts out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come. He did. The kingdom of God has arrived. And the kingly, majestic authority of the Holy One of God is now something that we possess. I love Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 that puts this in very similar or very different terms, but conveys the same idea. It says, For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Majesty. But then it goes on to describe us in relationship to Christ. I don't know if you remember what it says. And you are in him, having been filled. You have been filled in him, who is the head over every rule and authority. So there's nothing with us where we possess an inherent authority over this realm, but there's everything in Christ, and we are in Christ and share in his power and authority over this realm. That's the secret of this passage. And part of the reason for this text is Jesus sets an example by which we can live. Well, you may be wondering, well, what does this mean then, as we think about it? I'll tell a little bit of a story here where this might play out in a contemporary context. A few years ago, I got a call from a lady who was a student where I teach. And she uh, was a single parent. She had two daughters. I think, if I remember right, the ages were about seven and five or seven and four at the time, and she wanted to set an appointment to talk about some kind of spiritual attack that she felt like her kids were facing. So we set up a time. She came to my office, and we began talking about it, and she told me how she would be sitting on the couch after putting the kids to bed, and within an hour, one of them would come down the stairs crying and tell of this bad dream that she had. And a few minutes later, the other one would. And they were in separate bedrooms. The other one would come and tell of this horrible dream that in the way they described it seemed like more than a dream and it seemed like there was actually a presence in the room or something, but it was hard to know if it was dreaming or what. And she initially treated it as a bad dream. Oh, it's okay, you're just dreaming, just go back to bed. And she would comfort him, send him back. And this pattern recurred. The troubling part of it was the content of the dreams. And I won't relate what it was here, but it was hideous. It was awful. You don't expect a five-year-old and a seven-year-old to be telling some of the things that they were purporting to see in these dreams. And she said, is it possible this might be some kind of spiritual attack? And I said, well, I don't know for sure, but it certainly is possible that that's uh, the case So let's uh, begin an intervention that would treat it as a a spiritual attack. And basically what I I shared with her was you are the spiritual authority in the home. The demonic realm respects spiritual authority. They respected the authority of Jesus. 
you are in Jesus. All the fullness of the Godhead lives in him bodily, and you are in him. You have the authority in this instance to deal with the situation. So if, there's, if there are demonic spirits, you have the authority to deal with it. So what do you do? And what I advised in this particular instance was to wait till the girls were asleep, go into the room, pray over them, ask God's protection over them, but then to exercise authority over any demonic spirits that may be coming into the room to influence their minds, influence their dreams, influence their thoughts in any way. And I said, speak out loud, softly. It doesn't need to be really loud. And just call to attention any demonic spirits that may be present, that may have an assignment to afflict and torment this little girl, and say, I command you in the name of Jesus to leave this room. I prohibit you from ever entering in this room. I put this room under the protection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I claim this as holy space because this is a holy family in that we all know you and we are set apart for you and your purposes. And I said, try that and see if it works. Well, uh, the dreams didn't come back. And days, weeks went by, the dreams never came back. And I know they didn't come back because about three months later, uh, I got a wonderful little note from her with a gift card to the summit. (laughs) I said, thank you. That's amazing. It was that simple. It really worked. But it was the exercise of authority based on a relationship with Jesus and recognizing that there might be more to life than just dreams that there might be a spiritual component to this. Not always the case, but there sure might be. And I thought it might be helpful for a second just to share the difference between praying and exercising spiritual authority. Because I asked her to do both. There was one time a few years ago, I was wandering, I was running, not wandering, I was running through our neighborhood. I, I'd run three times a week, and I was running through our neighborhood. This back when we lived in La Mirada, dangerous place over there. Uh, <laughs> and as I was running along, going through this neighborhood, it was quiet, it was probably 6.30 in the morning, uh, there was a dog in this yard as I was running by, and when I'd run by this dog in the past, he was on a chain. And he was a woof, woof dog, not a yip, yip dog. And as I went running by, uh, he just looked really like he was going to bite my head off. But I didn't worry about it because he was on his chain. And I went running by. And then I noticed, wait a second, he's not on a chain. That dog is on the street coming after me. And, you know, your mind just works so fast like this, and I thought, where am I going to go? And I was looking for a car to jump up on the hood or something like that, because he was, woof, woof, you know, just coming after me. And I didn't know what to do. There was no place I could quickly go and hide. So it just came to me, I'm going to try something. And I just stood and faced him, and I said, go home. Get out of here. Go home. And the dog stopped. He just stopped there. And I said, go home in just real authoritative voice. And he turned around and went home. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, that is 
really amazing. So rather than turn around and start running again, because I knew what that would do, I just slowly backed up, and then when it corner, turned the corner, then I took off running really fast. But it dawned on me later, it's that way in the supernatural realm as well. Um, I could have uh, prayed at that moment, oh, Lord, just protect me from that stupid dog. And, and I did. I think I actually did really quickly. But there's a time to exercise authority as well and to instruct something, to speak directly to it. And it's that way in the supernatural realm when someone is facing some kind of direct attack. There is prayer and there's exercising authority. And we need to be able to do both in this way. And Jesus gives us that example, I think, not just to glorify him in terms of who he is, but also to reveal to us the way to move forward in issues like this that we face in life. Secondly, out of this passage regarding the majesty of God, the majesty of God is displayed in Jesus' passion. The majesty of God is displayed in Jesus' passion. Read with me Luke 9, 43 to 45. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to even ask him about this saying. This is the second of a series of what we would call passion predictions. Jesus was not caught off guard by the events that led to his suffering on the cross. He knew he was going to the cross. The disciples didn't know he was going to the cross, but he's preparing them so that when they later reflect back on all the events, they could see, well, he did, he, he told us this was what was going to happen. But the glory and majesty of Jesus, ironically, is revealed in his passion and in his suffering. John's gospel brings this out in a lot more as a major theme. In fact, John 12, 23 says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Referring to the cross and the resurrection event. There is glory that comes through the cross. And we might ask, how is that bringing glory to God? To see our Savior suffer and die but then be resurrected. How is the cross glory? We can see the resurrection somewhat, but how is the cross glory in this way? And the answer to that question is taken up with the issue of what is the central problem facing humanity? What is the biggest problem, the biggest issue facing all of humanity? Real question, not just rhetorical. The issue is sin. The fact that our lives are stained by sin, we're separated from God, cut off from a relationship with God, alienated from Him, and there's nothing we can do 
ourselves to bring us back into a relationship with God. And yet, the death of Jesus and his shed blood atones or takes care of the problem of sin once and for all. It brings glory to God. It's the center of his plan because it's through that event that all of humanity can be reconciled to God and be made children of God, sons and daughters of the king, and enter into a relationship that is glorious and wonderful. There is glory in the cross, and Jesus is pointing the way forward to that glory as he says this. This is the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. I've heard one scholar say it this way, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are passion narratives with long introductions. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say that, but there's a grain of truth to that, that if you look at the gospels, what I mean by the passion narrative, the story of the events leading to Jesus' death, his death and his resurrection, that's a big percentage of each of the Gospels. They're not true biographies of just all the details that happened, you know, when Jesus was junior high, when he was high school. They're focused on his ministry. They're focused primarily on his passion. That's because that passion is central to what we're all about. The Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is central And gospel, once again, means good news. And the good news is that we can enter into a relationship with God now because God has directly done something for us. He's taken the initiative to resolve that problem, and he does so through the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's majesty and glory in the gospel. I'm very grateful that this church got its start around the gospel. Our heart's desire is to see the gospel magnified in the city of La Habra and even beyond. This resonates with the heart of God himself. This is the majesty of God expressed in the gospel, that there's now an opportunity for a relationship with him through this good news of Jesus Christ. Now, finally, there's one more point to learn. Good preacher today, three points. (laughs) So, the majesty of God is displayed in deliverance. The majesty of God, ironically, is displayed in Jesus' passion. And the third cuts a little different way. There's a danger for us in seeking majesty for ourselves. A danger for us in seeking majesty ourselves of pumping ourselves up and being concerned about our own status among our friends and even those outside the community. Luke 9, 46 through through 50. And this is crazy right after what we've read. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Come on, guys, don't do this. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And then he says, 
John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Don't stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. A danger in seeking majesty for ourselves, in seeking status for ourselves. You know, the Olympics is kind of a crazy time to be talking about that. Who's the greatest? Well, Michael Phelps. (laughs) Or Katie Ledecky. Or Usain Bolt. When I was going through high school, it was Carl Lewis. And Carl Lewis, he was doing everything right. It was great. I know when I was going through high school, and I'm thinking a lot about high school this year because i got a big reunion coming up next month, and reflecting back on playing high school football, the town that I grew up in, a little farming town, football was like everything to the town. The whole town came out for that. So it was like a really, really big thing. And I know my senior year... Uh, there were six different guys trying out for the same position that I was playing. I was a flanker, which was part part, uh, uh, wide receiver and part running back, and I wanted it so bad. There were six other guys trying out, and the goal was to beat out the other guys and, and get the starting spot. And as I reflect back on that, there were a lot of good things, but there were some things about that kind of competition that weren't so good for my soul that I've had to work through. Um, Because there's a sense, even that expression, beating out the other guy, I was thinking about that. It's like, wow, you know, that's, (laughs) that's pretty harsh. Now, I think team competition can be really good, but it, there's a temptation in it to put others down to elevate yourself. The ultimate team competition is if you can help lift everyone up and they all do well as a team. But there's a strong tendency in our culture to elevate ourselves and push others down. And that could be illustrated so many different ways. Um, We've seen good examples of this in the Olympics and some really rotten examples of this in the Olympics. Uh, But Jesus' way is to elevate others and to live the life of a servant. This not only happens within our inner group, but it also happens as we look outside, as the last two verses point to. This guy that's out dealing with spirits, but he's not following us. Now, I would think this person that the disciples are upset about is a follower of Jesus, He's just not one of the 12. Otherwise, I think Jesus would have said something different uh, in this score. So he, he's not one of the inner group, and, and there's, I think it's still playing out where the disciples are elevating themselves. and put, This should be something only we do. Uh, and I think that spirit of competitiveness is also here as well. But there's a danger in us seeking majesty and glory. There's a danger for us in putting others down when we should be elevating others. And that's true even at a corporate level. That's true even if others are planting churches in our backyard. Uh, We're not in competition with anyone, any other group of believers. 
we want to cheer them forward. We want to encourage them. We want to move forward with the kingdom of God. So our heart is to elevate brothers and sisters in other churches to together fulfill the mission that God has given to us. But there's a temptation that pushes us the other way because of the spirit of competitiveness and our own pride in this. But Jesus denounces that. Time to bring it to a conclusion. You ready? Because we got to go compete. <laughs> We're going to put that in the Yeah, okay. <laughs> the Apostle Paul said, you are co-resurrected, co-ascended, and co-seated with Christ at the right hand of God. I had the hardest time understanding what that meant for so long. What does that mean? Co-resurrect, co-ascended, co- I'm right here. I'm not up there. But it's positionally, it's spiritually, it's relationally that we are in Christ. That's where we derive our source, our strength, and our authority. And as we end our time today, reflect on what it means to be in a relationship with Christ. We often think about a relationship of Christ as just intimacy and prayer. There's an objective side to a relationship with Christ where it can be said what happened to him, resurrection, exaltation, sitting at the right hand of God is also with us because we then share in his power and authority even over this weird stuff that we've talked about today. Let me conclude our time with a prayer of blessing on you and we'll draw this to a completion. Father, thank you for this group. I just pray that you will help them grasp a fresh image of Jesus and his exalted glory. I pray that you would help them understand who they are in you, that you have filled them and that they are united with you in your death, in your resurrection, and in your exaltation. And that you share, they share in your power and authority over the realm of evil. Give them victory over sin. Give them victory over the evil one. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.